Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is John Kiriakou. I'm here with my co-host, Michelle Witte. Get ready to go against the grain. Michelle, we have a full show today with lots and lots to talk about, as we always do. We're going to discuss a whole bunch of things. We're going to look at look at uh, Ukrainian relations with Russia or lack of relations. We're going to look at how Ukraine is uh, is working with your, the Europeans. We're going to talk about Iran. We have a whole bunch of things to talk about and good guests, as we always do. But before we get to those big stories, uh, there are some other things happening today that we wanted our listeners to know about. First, Senator Mitt Romney yesterday joined fellow Republicans Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins in announcing their support for Supreme Court nominee Ketanji Brown-Jackson. Judge Brown-Jackson has enough votes to be confirmed, and Democrats say that that should happen by the end of the week. But there's a little postscript to this, and that is um, Marjorie Taylor Greene, the uh, representative for QAnon, who also happens to be from Georgia. She tweeted last night a very short tweet, but here's what it said. Murkowski, Collins, and Romney are all pro-pedophile. They just voted for KGB, uh, KJB, unquote. Okay, they're not pro-pedophile. There's been no vote. She doesn't even know what she's talking about because she's so stupid she doesn't know how Congress operates. But anyway, um, she's going to be suspended again from Twitter. Uh, Twitter has already announced she she's referring to the decision by those three Republicans that I just mentioned to uh, to vote in support of Judge uh, Ketanji Brown Jackson's nomination. Last month, she got into it with Romney uh, when Romney called her a moron for attending a white supremacist rally. Romney said that Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar were both morons. This is what we've come to in our country. These are our lawmakers. <laughs> it's the pedophile thing is really going to. I don't know, man. I'm worried that this is going to come back to bite them in the oh, form. Of, you know, we already saw the comet ping pong. Sure. Uh, you know, near disaster. Yes. And uh, could have been a, a massacre there. It, it really could have, could have been. been, and it does feel like it's only a matter of time. Again, this is like some things in the world are very serious. And it isn't, uh, you know, it, it, there is no benefit to playing with terms like this, right? There's no benefit to playing around at, at, at associating people with pedophiles. There's no benefit to playing around with the term genocide. Uh, you know, no. I think we all we all lose when these things become so degraded as to lose their meaning because they don't lose their meaning for everybody. And if you say there's a, you know, Congress is defending pedophiles. Right. People who take that seriously are going to perhaps think that it calls for serious action. And that's really dangerous. Like this guy that you were alluding to a moment ago who uh, had been reading that Comet Ping Pong, which is a, a popular pizza place up on Connecticut Avenue by Politics and Prose Bookstore. Delicious pizza. Big, huge place. Very popular with families. Uh, these rumors got started that uh, that Hillary Clinton and her cabal of Washington pedophiles were keeping children there, prisoner. In, and a, in a basement in that a didn't basement exist. Yeah. And drinking their blood and, you know, whatever it is that they were doing. Seriously, this is what people believed. And this, this I'm, I'm going to say this poor guy yeah. who was duped into believing it drove up here. This is a father of two. Yeah. Drove up here with an AK-47 to liberate the children from the pizza parlor. And he walks in and he shouts, you know, where are the children? He's got his gun up. Uh, where's the basement? Well, there is no basement yeah. in Comet Ping Pong. And so he broke a door, 
into what turned out to be their computer room, fired a couple of shots, and then said, oh, crap, what have I done? Yeah. He just got out of prison about six months ago, and he is full of remorse. He just can't believe that he was duped into doing something Mm -hmm. like this. But this goes to what you said. There are a lot of people out there who are going to fall for something like this when they keep hearing from the likes of Marjorie Taylor Greene and from Fox News and OAN and Newsmax day in and day out that there's a cabal of pedophiles that runs Washington. They're going to believe it and do something terrible. Yeah. Speaking of terms that have been uh, degraded beyond all meaning, uh, the the United States today was advocating for Russia to be suspended from the UN's yeah, Human Rights Council. That was rich. Uh, chaired by Saudi Arabia. Yeah. I mean, in the meantime, you know, of course, a lot of this is about this is about the conduct of the war in Ukraine and specifically now these atrocities that have been uh, uncovered in Bucha and that uh, Zelensky and the Ukrainian government are warning will be discovered elsewhere. Yes. Um you know, still news organizations, U.S. government still sort of working on confirming what exactly happened. But you do have the New York Times reporting today that, uh, you know, they they have satellite images that contradict Russia's claims that the bodies were uh, the, the scene was somehow staged right after what Russian troops had withdrawn. They say, no, we've got this. We've got images of bodies lying in the streets since the middle of March or toward the end of March. They come, of course, from technology company Maxar, uh, which we've talked about before. But, you know, again, uh, yeah, uh, quite a lot of pushback on on that explanation, which seems like also, you know, I mean, we we heard that explanation yesterday in some detail. Uh, It does seem like quite a lot of work to go to with with quite a lot of willing partners. You know, I mean, I I do think that uh, I think the behavior of the press in this conflict and a lot of the American press just in general is pretty shameful. Are they so craven as to be involved in a cover up of that scale? I don't know. But we will talk about this a little bit more with the guest as that continues to be. I'm looking forward to that because there's a lot to say. Yeah. You know, it, nobody's gotten to the bottom of this yet. And uh, this is going to be a story that uh, I think uh, proceeds for some time. And the continued, again, spectacle and mingling of of foreign policy, war policy, and, and bizarrely American entertainment and the, our entertainment systems, oh, is, is does, I just don't think it helps. I just don't think it helps people's understanding of, of the war and wh- how we actually arrived at this point and what it would take to, to end it. Agreed. Well, in more serious news. Oh, is this about UFOs? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Pentagon yesterday released Almost 1,600 pages of documents related to UFOs after a four-year-long Freedom of Information Act battle with the UK's Sun newspaper. Some of the information is routine. Some of it is fascinating, including reports on the, what they're describing, the Pentagon is describing of the after effects of UFO sightings. Uh, Some of those after effects include burns, heart problems, Sleep disturbances, even things like apparent abductions, and my favorite, unexplained pregnancies. No. Yeah. This is in an actual (laughs) DOD document. Unexplained pregnancies. I mean, I think this is fascinating because, again, it shows like, look, it's not necessarily confirming that some of these things have happened or haven't happened. But they're saying like what we need to do because there's so much unknown is we need to create we need to create yeah. uniform terminology so that we That's can right. report on it. And they have these different categories of different things that you could encounter ah, and see. Yes. Yeah. I think that do. is really interesting. The categories were fascinating to me. 
So one report notes that many of these symptoms are consistent with exposure to electromagnetic radiation, which is fascinating because a lot of people claim sensitivity to electromagnetic radiation. Now, here is actual evidence of people being burned and having, you know, heart palpitations or whatever. One fascinating document included in what's called an acquisition thread support report uh, sets out how to categorize what they describe as anomalous behavior. Right. So included (laughs) included in this 1600 pages of FOIA documents are encounters with ghosts, Mm -hmm. yetis, spirits, obviously elves and other mythical and legendary entities. Those are all classed as something called AN3. Seeing a UFO with actual aliens on board is categorized as a CE3. All of those things are also categorized as awesome, right? <laughs> you also get to, there's a box where you go, did you have an awesome experience? Yes, absolutely. Oh my God. Yeah. So there are other categories for poltergeists, crop circles, spontaneous human combustion, which I got to tell you, when I was a little kid, we used to hear about... With- you used yeah. to hear about spontaneous human combustion all the time. all the time. Between spontaneous human combustion and, and the Bermuda Triangle mm-hmm. and uh, quicksand, I thought, oh, my God, how am I ever going to end up being an adult? But you know what this is evidence right? of? Is a true spirit of open inquiry. That's right. right. That's and we have talked to, you point. know, we talked to a astronomer, uh, Avi Loeb, on, on the show before, the, the Harvard yes. astronomer who is saying, we look, we, we have ruled out the possibility that uh, uh, Oumuamua, the, the interstellar traveler, that sort of oblong thing that oh, passed yeah, through right. our, our galaxy and, and then continues in uh, appeared to ancient be. carvings yeah, and stuff. Yeah, he was stuff. saying, look, the explanation that requires the fewest leaps of logic is that it was powered, that it was this was a solar powered thing like that is the that's the straightest line to the behavior that I saw. And we shouldn't rule it out just because it sound because we haven't, you know, because we don't believe in aliens yet yeah. or something like that. Like this is yeah. it, you know, saying like, OK, let's just here's how we talk about this stuff if we are to encounter it. I mean, yeah, it's sort of funny, but there, there's a famous Greek Orthodox icon from I think it's from the 7th century. Uh, and in the corner of the icon, it's Christ on the cross, and in the corner of the icon is clearly a man inside an orb, and his hand is on a stick, like a stick shift or something. And this has long been questioned in the Greek Orthodox Church. Like, why would the iconographer paint this in the seventh century? And the church came up with this explanation. Well, it's not a spaceship. It's, a, it's the sun. It's just a representation of the sun. And he's not a space traveler. He's an angel. But, you know, you got to wonder <laughs> what would possess the the icon painter to paint it like that? I mean, I think this this stuff is fascinating. I don't you know, I, I it, yeah, it is. I think there's a lot. I, I am very content to live in a world where I don't think that I know everything that's happened or that we have explanations Amen. for every natural phenomenon that exists now. I also I'm going to uh, say I read a fascinating book about the Yeti, about the search for a Yeti It's called uh, Yeti, the Ecology of a Mystery. Mm. And it was a beautiful, beautiful book, uh, really sort of idiosyncratic, interesting in its in its writing style, written by this guy who is a, an, an American who grew up in the Himalayas, the foothills of the Himalayas, and goes to try and find out what exactly this thing is. And it gets into, you know, the nature of taxonomy and who defines 
what are the differences between animal species? And, you know, like it sort of gets into a, a level of, uh, in this case, some amount of European chauvinism when it comes to defining animals and groups and stages of life. And like, what do we, how, how do we consider, uh, how do we consider animals to be different? And are there actually other ways to, to categorize them? And I think it's important to say like, we, you know, we, we walk around operating within a sort of set uh, framework for viewing the world. But like that framework isn't necessarily all encompassing. And if you sort of totally crack it agree. open, you can find really interesting, interesting possibilities for these things that aren't necessarily, you know, an, an idea of a, a discrete living creature coming to visit us. But what is a manifestation of the human mind? I don't right. know. Yeah, sure. I, love I wish we had more time because I would tell you about this documentary I just watched on Netflix about these seven uh, scientists in California that all pitched in and bought some really, really remote land that they built a shack on. And the land is, they, they wouldn't tell you exactly where it was, but it's, it's like right on the border of Wyoming and Colorado in what they say is the darkest place in the continental United States, right? The darkest sky. the actual dark. And um, they, they told this chilling story about, about, you know, being there with, well, the, the guys that were interviewed were telling the story about being there with their dads when they were little kids and um, seeing things like this light that was just kind of floating above the ground and, and moving around trees and rocks, just a, a light. And they all saw it. They all watched it. And then they heard what they thought were bears. And so they went into the shack to protect themselves. One of them hit a recorder and recorded this, these sounds, these growls that they later determined were of a range that animals couldn't make. And we need to just dump all our guests and make this a podcast about the supernatural and <laughs> I spiritual. Know, right? John, listen, perhaps in part eight, I will tell you about my own, ex my uh, ghost question mark experience. Well, let's talk uh, about yeah, that because we'll I've, yeah, we'll I've got one well, or two. We don't, have a, we don't have tomorrow booked up too much. We'll just do two, right. hour, two hours on our own unexplained uh, I would totally be okay with it. Yeah. Let me say one last thing. Uh, and I apologize in advance if this makes you sad in any way. But DirecTV announced yesterday afternoon that they would drop the right wing news network OAN. Uh, you might remember OAN as one of the right wing networks that took off in the final days of the Trump presidency when he was angry with Fox News for calling Arizona for Biden. And then they wouldn't take it back. OAN and their rival Newsmax became very popular for 15 minutes or so. Uh, and now DirecTV is dropping OAN and the network says that it just cannot survive financially. So we'll see where that goes. We sure will. OK, well, we are live in Washington, D.C. We're going to take a short break and we're going to come back in a minute with our first guest. Stay tuned. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou taking a break, just a short break from UFOs and, and ghosts <laughs> to talk about Europe. It's an energy crisis, the possible political fallout. We're going to look at the election in France. We're going to look at 
uh, how Germany is trying to divorce itself from Russian energy. Joining us to get into these topics and more is Dr. Kenneth Surin. He's a political and foreign affairs analyst, and he's professor emeritus of literature and professor of religion and critical theory at Duke University. Dr. Surin, thanks for joining us again. You're welcome. Let's start with France uh, and the upcoming election there. Emmanuel Macron, the the president, early in this crisis between Russia and Ukraine, before the invasion, uh, was described as trying to use the crisis to burnish his credentials as a statesman. And though he obviously was not able to avert this war, uh, headlines would have him benefiting from being a a quasi-wartime leader. Uh, They also, however, are saying, he is perhaps becoming a little more vulnerable due to the potential for higher energy costs, again, as a result of this war. There are lots of warnings now that the race between him and Marine Le Pen in particular on the far right could be a lot tighter than anticipated. There is also the possibility that these warnings are coming from Macron's camp itself in order to try to motivate uh, his voters. And so I wonder I wonder what you think of how the election in France is shaping up and, and what will actually decide it. There has, as you pointed out, undoubtedly been a narrowing uh, in the gap between Macron and his rivals in the opinion polls. Um, I think the gap is around six points now. The first round of the presidential election will be on Sunday. Um, I still think that the uh, the two candidates who will go forward into a runoff, if Macron does not get 50% of the vote, and it's almost certain that he won't, Uh, will be Macron and Le Pen. Now, what's contributed to this? Uh, Well, Macron, as you pointed out, burnished his credentials by being uh, a wider uh, statesman in a wider realm outside France. That did him good. But at the same time, this meant that he devoted no time to campaigning within France itself. And Le Pen uh, has tremendous energy when it comes to campaigning. Uh, she was relentless in running town halls, um, et cetera, et cetera, while he was away from the scene. Uh, the other contributing factor uh, is this, that Le Pen has a candidate who is even further to the right than her. Um, and so by comparison with the options available on the right, she has appeared to be relatively moderate. In addition to that, um, she has done uh, quite a bit to detoxify her brand. Uh, She no longer calls for the death penalty. She no longer calls for uh, the... um, uh, uh, the withdrawal from the EU. Uh, she no longer has uh, um, on her slate radical anti-immigration images. So combined with the fact that uh, a far-right candidate is making her look moderate and the fact that she uh, has toned down um, the more unpalatable aspects of her brand, um, she became more presentable to the electorate. Um, And I think the third factor going on here uh, is that the the contest has been relatively non-adversarial compared to uh, British, uh, to previous presidential elections, um, largely because of the uh, horizon supplied by the Ukraine war. Um, So all in all, this has 
um, reduce the gap between Macron and Le Pen. But I still think Macron will prevail simply because uh, when it gets to the second round, um, uh, voters to the left of Macron will simply hold their noses and say, look, uh, this is the choice between the devil and the deep blue sea. Um, And in that case, we have to keep Le Pen out. So, uh, as I said, they'll hold their noses and vote for Macron. I want to talk, I want to come back to sort of uh, Marine Le Pen sort of uh, uh, sanitizing her campaign. But I want to talk about those those left voters in France for a minute. Uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon is is in this race again. I I think in the last election, there was there was a moment of hope that actually he might have a chance. And I'm wondering why it's been so hard for him to consolidate, uh, consolidate votes on the left. Uh, I think the primary reason is this. The left is deeply divided. Um, I think there are three left candidates left in the field, um, including Mélenchon. And um, the other factor, of course, is that um, he's regarded pretty much as old news. He is much more uh, of a, a rhetorician um, some would say even a rabble rouser. Um, and of course, these days, when the temperature overall in Europe, not just as a result of climate change, but also as a result of Ukraine, is high, um, a candidate who does not come across as someone uh, who is a generator of policies, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, um, is is not going to be viewed that favorably. So the disunity on the left, uh, uh, Mélenchon himself perceived to have more faults this time than he did when he last ran, uh, I think, yes, in 2017. Um, that has contributed to the diminution uh, in in his electoral impact. And is there a is there a trend right now to be sort of discerned in European politics? Right. We had Viktor Orban sailing to uh, victory in Hungary once again. Orban, of course, is a right wing leader. He doesn't seem to have, uh, you know, made any bones about his, uh, you know, I I don't think there's been any sanitizing uh, of Orban and his uh, priorities. Uh, You have, you know, Boris Johnson in, in the UK. I think there was a time when there was a fear that there would be a sort of right wing wave in Europe. But if Le Pen is gaining support by moving away from her more uh, offensive uh, campaign platform, uh, what does that say? Or is there is there not actually a pattern here and we're looking for something that just doesn't exist? Um, I don't think there is a pattern here. Um, These uh, trends that you just indicated are the result, I think, of movements within particular nations, and they don't converge into a Europe-wide trend. I also wanted to talk a little bit about energy. Uh, You have the EU today proposing to sanction imports of Russian coal. Uh, This has obviously not been approved yet, but the sanctions would ban Russian coal it would cap uh, imports of Belarusian potash, which is used for fertilizer. Most Russian road freight and shipping carriers would be blocked from entering the EU and high tech exports to Russia would be blocked. Uh, and I wonder, I mean, given that Germany alone gets half its coal and half its natural gas from Russia, it seems like 
there's no way for such a, a swift transition to be approved. Uh, but I wonder if if more dramatic sanctions like this are, are perhaps gaining in popularity and if we might see something, uh, something like a full ban start to take shape. I think the longer the conflict goes on, the more likely it is that sanctions will escalate. Um, and of course, sanctions come with a price. Uh, for Russia, most obviously, uh, but also, as you've just pointed out, um, for the countries that are imposing these sanctions, um, energy prices will almost certainly go up throughout Europe, probably less so than France, because its energy policy is nuclear-based. But elsewhere, um, there will be if not shortages, at least swinging increases um, in energy prices. Now, how they deal with that, um, we don't know. I think, obviously, Europe itself will up its uh, production of carbon-based energy. Um, Poland, for example, is a very significant producer of coal. Germany might ask it to uh, up its production and import the uh, the gain in production to Germany. Uh, Czechoslovakia is, well, not a major producer of coal, but it does have a you know, considerable number of coal reserves. And again, it could be asked to up production and to export uh that uh, new gain in production to Germany. So I think palliative measures of some kind will be taken, but there's absolutely no doubt that they will not compensate for the loss of uh, the energy resources that are um, being imported from Russia. And you wonder what impact that will have on European politics. You know, if you suddenly if, if suddenly Europe is turning to producing its own fossil fuels, you know, quite a lot of, I think, Left-wing parties in Europe have uh, embraced climate change and environmentalism as part of their platforms. How do they stand up against, you know, the de- understandable desire of populations to not have all of these energy costs passed on to them? I'm wondering how how Europe reacts to increasing uh, energy prices and what effect this has on politics on the continent. I think, of course, the effects will be variable. For example, there are European countries that are somewhat more uh, agrarian than others, uh, and so their energy demands are not so great. I'm thinking here of the uh, EU periphery. Um, But those countries which... uh, whose economies um, rely heavily on manufacturing uh, undoubtedly will take a bigger hit um, than the the more agrarian-dependent economies. So the effects will be will be variable, um, and then also there are differing internal uh, political situations. Um, uh, some countries uh, uh, have people who take to the streets more readily than others. Well, we know that happens in France. But I think overall, uh, the political pitch that will be adopted by Western leaders uh, is to tell their people, look, this is a war that's been the most significant war fought in Europe since the Second World War. And wars entail sacrifices. And so in this case, we have to make sacrifices for the people of Ukraine. 
Um, so that line will be sold uh, to their respective electorates. Um, and then I think there, uh, there will be, as I said earlier, palliative measures taken uh, to compensate for the loss of energy resources that previously stemmed from Russia. Let's talk a little bit about the, the war and how we arrived here. I wanted to ask what you make of Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky calling former German Chancellor Angela Merkel and ex-French President Nicolas Sarkozy uh, basically enablers of the atrocities that we saw over the weekend in, in Bucha. Uh, Zelensky is calling on the UN to consider the actions of political actors outside Russia and Ukraine, who he, uh, you know, says paved the way for the invasion. And I, I wonder if you think, you know, we have talked on this show quite a lot about the the responsibility the United States should bear in, uh, you know, facilitating this, this tipping point. Uh, but I wonder if you think Merkel and Sarkozy are also uh, correct targets here. Oh, no, I, I, I think they're not. Um, Ukraine simply wasn't on the radar during the time when they were in power. And I think Zelensky is doing a little bit of grandstanding now, primarily with the aim of prodding France and Germany into taking more action uh, in support of Ukraine. Now, why do I say that? Well, when Merkel and uh, Sarkozy uh, were in office, the primary aim when it came to EU expansion um, was Turkey. Now, I'm not saying aim in the sense of wanting to make Turkey an EU member, but in the sense that Turkey, uh, already being a NATO member uh, and wanting to join the EU, uh, obviously posed um, uh, a choice for Merkel and Sarkozy. Um, bring Turkey in, or because it is primarily a Muslim nation, keep Turkey out. And so they decided, you know, given the anti-immigrant uh, uh, sentiment, uh, that is, plays a fairly significant part um, in French politics, perhaps less so in Germany, but there is some anti-Turkish uh, Gastarbeiter uh, resentment um, in Germany. They decided to keep Turkey out. So if they're going to keep Turkey out, how could they invite Ukraine to join the EU? Because this would obviously seem like uh, Islamophobia, anti-Muslim prejudice, etc. Not inviting a NATO member uh, to join the EU, but inviting uh, a white uh, um, non-NATO member uh, to join the EU. So they, they were in an impossible place. And I think Zelensky knows this. Um, and his rhetoric is really directed at getting France and Germany to do more now um, by, if you like, invoking the specter of inactivity on the part of Merkel and Sarkozy. Let's talk about also what Europe is is doing on behalf of Ukraine. Uh, there was news this morning that the Czech Republic has been, uh, it's said quietly is the adjective, quietly supplying Ukraine with tanks. Uh, Ukraine, obviously, from the start, has been asking for more heavy weaponry. It's been asking for tanks. It's been asking for, for planes. Other countries so far have been reluctant to supply them. Uh, how, how big a deal is it that the Czech Republic is, is passing on some of their uh, refurbished Soviet-era tanks? 
Well, I don't think, you know, that will uh, be a major diplomatic geopolitical problem. Uh, the Czech Republic is not a military force. Now, if these weapons, and obviously they would be more state-of-the-art uh, if this happened, if these weapons came from Britain, Germany, or France, uh, then... Uh, there would obviously be a furor, an even greater furor, of course, if they came from the United States. Um, so I think all, all sides accept that the uh, Ukraine and Russia uh, are not in this war uh, merely by themselves. Belarus is giving uh, Russia considerable support. So people will just say, look, if Belarus uh, is doing this, then a few not state-of-the-art weapons coming in from the Czech Republic, um, well, you know, we are, not, um, we are not going to lose sleep over that. Simply something that is occurring in the wider context of this war. I mean, I think the other question that, that comes up is whether actually this this is, in fact, coordinated, right? And you, you well, the, this is sort of coordinated uh, at the level of the EU, coordinated at the level of NATO to uh, send, you know, make a big deal about sending some weapons to Ukraine from the United States, from France, from Germany, and sort of quietly let some smaller countries with less advanced but uh, less advanced heavy weaponry pass that to Ukraine. Do you think we should not see this as piecemeal, but in fact coordinated? Um, I don't think it is rigorously coordinated. Um, you know, there are different forms of coordination, uh, as has been pointed out on your show before. Um, and I, but I think this is uh, a middling to low level uh, form of coordination. And basically what happens is, you know, not, uh, look, uh, here are your orders, provide uh, Ukraine with a certain such number of tanks. But, you know, let's do a whip round uh, the, uh, uh, the NATO countries and see who can spare um, a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Uh, and if you can spare it, just send it over to Ukraine. Uh, I think it's that level of coordination um, rather than setting production targets uh, for different countries in sending weapons, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think there's coordination at that level. I'm wondering what the, you know, if, if this conflict continues for a long time and, and pressure builds, as you have predicted it would, to enact more uh, stringent restrictions on energy from Russia or, or total bans. What does this do to the to the EU as a political entity, right? Does it does it start to fray as you continue to have, you know, you will have Germany probably uh, wanting, uh, you know, with some political motivations to uh, to get behind some of these restrictions, but practically really unable to. You have countries like Hungary, of course, uh, that are uh, have absolutely no desire to change their energy relationship or their trade relationship with Russia, and have made mo no bones about saying so. And I'm wondering, as this crisis, as this crisis, you know, if it draws out, uh, is it going to present a political problem for the EU? Even thinking about, you know, the the different um, the different palliative efforts uh, that different countries might want to employ to. Uh, protect their citizens from these energy uh, crises. I mean, we've seen the EU get into uh, pretty 
pretty difficult arguments about uh, individual monetary policy in com- in different countries. So I'm wondering, you know, if you foresee this this conflict as setting up a real political crisis for the EU potentially. I don't think it will be. It will amount to a major crisis because simply while there is a war going on, the the incentive. Uh, to not rock the boat uh, will, I think, overcome uh, all the uh, the differences. Um, and uh, I think what will happen at best will be uh, a slap at the wrist for anyone who steps out of line. Uh, Orban is the most likely uh, leader to receive a slap on the wrist. And there might be some uh, uh, reduction in EU subsidies in this or that sector uh, for Hungary. Um, But I don't think that there will be uh, anything that rises to the heights, and these would be draconian heights, of suspending Hungary, say, uh, from EU membership for a certain period of time. I also want to ask who who in Europe might be um, benefiting from this conflict. You know, we, we had news again yesterday that the U.S. Is, uh, has come up with another, I think, $300 million worth of military aid for Ukraine, uh, sending them uh, machine guns, armored vehicles, anti-tank missiles, and of course, uh, sending them not from our own stockpiles, but directly from manufacturers, right? And so it's, you know, it's always a good time to be a weapons maker in the United States, but uh, this seems to be a particularly good time as, as our government at least keeps coming up with, uh, with more money to send to these weapons makers to then pass on to Ukraine. And I'm wondering if, you know, we... We talked earlier about how, you know, these energy costs are going to be passed on to, you know, uh, the the lowest rung on the ladder. Who is going to be who who instead is going to be making money? Obviously, uh, those EU countries or Western countries, uh, uh, because they are non-EU members um, who are weapons manufacturers, uh, those countries that are weapons manufacturers uh, will obviously benefit. And we are thinking here um, of the UK. We are thinking here of France. Um, Germany produces some weapons, um, but really because of the constraints imposed by uh, the post-Second World War order, uh, it is not a major manufacturer of weapons. And there are other countries that, uh, and this may be a surprise to some people, uh, that are major manufacturers of weapons. For example, Saab in Sweden doesn't just produce those long-lasting cars, Mm -hmm. uh, quality cars. It also produces fighters, fighter jets. Um, So I think those European countries uh, which have an arms manufacturing center uh, are certainly going to be uh, reaping the benefit of this or any war. I mean, for example, uh, the UK uh, um, weapons manufacturing uh, sector is a major supply of arms for Saudi Arabia, uh, which Saudi Arabia in turn uses against Yemen. Um, So all wars benefit these entities, and the Ukraine will be no exception. Yeah, absolutely. That was Dr. Ken Surin of uh, Duke University. Dr. Surin, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back.
to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky addressed the United Nations Security Council today, where he accused Russia of genocide and war crimes, including at Bucha, or Bucha, where dozens of bodies of civilians have turned up in makeshift graves. Zelensky says the Russians have committed war crimes worse than that. Meanwhile, Newsweek magazine is reporting that the United States is pushing Russia to default on its debts, apparently in an effort to bleed the Russian economy. While at home, Democrats in Congress are debating whether or not to appropriate even more money for the Pentagon than our defense leaders have asked for. We're going to talk about that and more with Joe Loria. He's the editor-in-chief of Consortium News, founded by the late Robert Perry, and he's the author of the book, How I Lost by Hillary Clinton. Welcome back, Joe. Oh, we lost Joe. You know what? Joe's far away. He's yep. in Australia. It's like the middle of the night there. And uh, we'll have to pick him back up. You know, my my brother's uh, former father-in-law was not a terribly sophisticated guy. And uh, he got a new phone and he pointed to the phone, not a cell phone, like a phone you plug into the wall. And he said to my brother, see that phone? He said, the technology is so good on phones now. If I wanted to, I could call China with that phone. We congratulated I, him. Yeah, yeah. I will say I, I haven't, I haven't figured out like overseas dialing on my phone very no, well. No, no, it's very I, annoying. I, I, I was trying a Wi-Fi call the other day. Uh-huh. I don't know how to make that work. I don't understand. And I thought like maybe with Wi-Fi call, I can call New Zealand because right. it's not on my mobile plan, but right. apparently not. So uh, you know, see, I I'm just fall like back on Skype. Stuff. It's yeah. free. You know, I don't know what the heck their business model is. But uh, I don't think I've ever paid anything for an international call on Skype, and I've been using it since they created Skype. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's perfect. I lucked out. Did we get Joe back? Not yet. That's okay. Yeah, it's fine. We, have, we still have a lot to go over. Okay, well, you know. I, I think this story about trying to push Russia to default is an, is an interesting one. I, it's, it's part, American policy is very sophisticated. Oh, okay, he is back. Okay, Joe, welcome back to the show. Thank you, John. Sorry about that. No, no, I think that was uh, that was just a normal technical issue. Joe, let's begin with uh, Ukraine and Russia. I'm increasingly confused about Russia's strategy here. The Russians have been previously very clear about what they want. They want Donetsk and Luhansk to be independent republics. They want to maintain control over Crimea. So why attack Kiev in the first place? Why attack civilians? What would the Russians get out of it? It seems antithetical to their goals. Well, have they attacked the capital? Well, you know, that's another, that's a good question. Have they? Well, here's the deal. Um, there are two completely different stories going on here. We're only allowed to hear the Ukrainian side of the story. That's what Western media is reporting all the time. Right. And they're doing every effort uh, through pressure from the government on social media companies or whatever to shut down. As, as many people at Sputnik and RT know, yes, indeed. Um, especially at RT America, to shut down another point of view. Not saying that that's the true one or that Ukraine is all false, but we're only getting one side. And this is, this is the time when we need both sides more than ever in a war. But you can get an idea of what the Russians are saying. If you go to Telegram and you join their uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs or the Ministry of Defense, they send right. throughout the day. Okay, so you have to look at both sides and then try to figure out as best as you can what's going on on the ground. I don't pretend to know what's going on on the ground, but I am trying to look at both sides. The Ukrainian side, therefore the New York Times side, is that 
Ukraine's winning the war. Russia has got bogged down, stalled. They keep saying they're stalled. They keep saying they're stalled outside Kiev. However, the Russian argument has been they never intended to attack Kiev. They, in fact, put those troops there. That long column, if you remember, right. on the highway that sure. Nancy Pelosi said she'd like to bomb right. if she can get into a plane. That, that Those were a diversionary tactic to drive, to keep Ukrainian forces bogged down in Ukraine to defend the capital. And meanwhile, the war was going on in Mariupol, which is part of of uh, the Donbass. Donetsk and Luhansk are the two republics that declared independence that Russia uh, dent, uh, sorry, recognized the day before they went in to help them. So the war is in the Donbass. Now, Putin made a speech, I think it was March sometime last month to a group of airline employees in which he explained what the strategy was. That's been backed up by briefings from Russian generals. The war was always about Donbass, they say, but they understood that if they only attacked the Ukrainian troops there, and there are about 60,000 that were beginning an offensive, that's OSCE statistics show that the shellings have intensified immensely from the government side into the rebel side. Uh, Russia says that intelligence that it would be a ground assault. We'll never know that. They acted first. That's what I think the trap was that was set for Russia. But they, the war was always about Donbass, but they had to go and uh, put those troops to Kiev to keep Ukrainian forces from being uh, replenished in the Donbass with more coming from the West. And they also um, wanted, they needed to demilitarize the country, which was to bomb the hell out of as many fuel and ammo uh, and training centers, all military installations around the country, including near the Polish border, if you recall, against yes. that NATO center some um, weeks ago. So in order so that they could not have a military to reinforce the, for, the troops that they are now surrounding and supposedly decimating, according to the Russians, in, in the Donbass. The Mariupol was the big battle because that's the big city. That's where the Azov neo-Nazi battalion is mostly concentrated, but not only. And uh, Russia says they're winning there. Ukraine doesn't say much about Donbass, but they are making, if you look at Zelensky's pleas for, for weapons, for tanks, for planes, for fuel. Why? Because a lot of it has obviously been decimated in the first weeks of the war. So they're losing the war, it looks like. That's what Russia says. But the American press and Ukraine says they're winning because of this battle, uh, as we saw in that town near Kiev. But I don't know whether Russia actually ever wanted to attack Kiev. I think if you believe the Russian side, it was a diversionary tactic. They've now pulled out many of their troops from there to go and join the fight in Donbass. If you believe the Ukrainian side, they're winning and they stopped uh, the Russians from taking over the capital. But there never really was a battle for Kiev, was there? No, there never really was. You know, this is just as an aside, and this probably means nothing, but I'll make the point anyway. On, on Facebook, there's a there's a page called um, Views from My Back Window, right, where people take pictures from their houses and just show everybody on the page, what their view is like. It's kind of a nice, like a feel-good page. I would say, and I'm not exaggerating, 80% of the pictures uh, come from Ukraine. I don't know why. And people are showing the view from their balcony, the view from their house, and you can see all parts of Kiev, right? And it looks like any other normal European capital. There's no smoke in the distance. There are no buildings that are blown up. Everybody's just like, we're worried, we're nervous, but here's the view from my back window. 
and it looks beautiful and you can't see anything. Well, okay. Well, so where's the war? You know, and I understand it's in it's in Donbass. I understand it's in Crimea and Maripol and places like this. But, you know, if you watch the U.S. media, it's this constant bombardment of Kiev and it's just not happening. No, it's not true. At the very first days of the war, there were explosions around Kiev that could be heard. And those were military installations that were being destroyed. So right. that's just I don't believe they ever intended to attack at this point. Anyway, there was no intention to take over the capital. The fight is over Donbass at this point. Now, there's also the denazification, right. which uh, Putin announced, and that might necessitate some kind of attack on Lvov, because that is where the, the center, the heartland of the Bandarites live. And that is uh, where Azov comes from, where all of these, most of these neo-Nazi groups originate. And that's where there's a statue of Stefan Bandera, the World War II era Ukrainian fascist leader, and who's been revered and was made a hero of the of Ukraine, and, and this is a, a symbol to destroy that statue. That was Scott Ritter on his show yesterday talking about blowing up that statue is required in order, and then instituting laws uh, that would outlaw Nazi Nazi groups and Nazi symbols, etc. I don't know how Russia is about to do that. But if you look at just this phase of it now, the demilitarization, they have seriously hurt Ukrainian military, and they are trying to beat them now in the Donbass to free them uh, by circling and fighting. And that's what most of the fighting is. It was never in Kiev. I, I think you might have to see that, say, the Russians were telling the truth about it being a diversion. Others say, no, they were stalled there because of why. Uh, I don't know. I don't know where the attacks were. Yeah. Last, last week and the week before, uh, the two sides... The Russians and the Ukrainians met several times in Istanbul, and there seemed to be at least some incremental progress that was being made, especially after the first round of talks. And then we never heard anything else. I would assume that the two sides aren't meeting anymore in Istanbul. Have you heard anything at all about uh, peace talks? Should we be expecting some kind of a negotiation I participated in this uh, seminar the other day, and I was reminded of something that Andrei Gromyko, the former Soviet foreign minister, said, that he would rather have 10 years of difficult negotiations than one day of war. And, uh, you know, there's something to that. I, th I think he's right. So are there negotiations going on, difficult or not? We're getting both. We're getting war and difficult mm. negotiations. Yes. Russia began negotiations from the very beginning of this war. There was a meeting within a few days in Belarus, if you recall. Then there's been the Istanbul. There was a previous meeting elsewhere in Turkey between Lavrov and uh, Kuleba, the Ukrainian foreign minister. The negotiations are going on. There was what looked like a breakthrough because the Russian foreign ministry put out a statement uh, that Ukraine had agreed to the three central demands for a conditional surrender, essentially, uh, uh, for Ukraine. One, that Ukraine uh, recognizes Donbass as an independent, two independent republics there, and they recognize Crimea as part of the uh, of Russia. Two, they would uh, most importantly put in their constitution that they are a neutral country. They will never join NATO. And I always have a trouble always remembering three things, but they had agreed to the third as well. And uh, that just fell apart. Now, Russia, uh, Ukrainians wanted, in exchange for recognizing Crimea and Donbass at that point, and of putting neutrality in their in their uh, constitution, they wanted some security guarantees 
that would approximate the Article 5 of the NATO treaty, but would include all countries, including Russia, would have a say. Uh, another part of it was not having no foreign forces on Ukrainian soil, including Russian forces. They would have to withdraw. So Russia withdraws. Ukraine becomes a neutral country, will never join NATO. There are no NATO forces there either training them. It's completely neutral with no foreign forces there. But they would they wanted some guarantees if they were ever to be attacked again, that countries could come to their aid, not NATO countries, other countries. Uh, out, but And I'm not sure that that's uh, was something the Russians were keen about. It fell apart. But there's, there was apparently some core agreement. But you have to understand also, Zelensky is saying one thing one minute and literally five minutes later the next. And I, these are the pressures, I think, that are being put on him, mostly from the United States, but also from these extreme right groups, uh, for him not to concede anything. I think he personally wants to make a deal with Russia because he understands they're losing. And what's the point of more Ukrainians dying when we can make a deal now, a conditional surrender where they can get to keep a lot rather than unconditional surrender, which may turn into eventually, and so many more people will die. So uh, in fact, the story came out uh, in the Wall Street Journal the other day that he was offered by Germany uh, a deal. He wanted uh, Kiev to agree to never join NATO and make a statement. And Zelensky said no. I, did he say that on his own will, or was that pressure from the US? I think the US wants this war to drag on. I think they want to bleed Russia. I think they've set this up as a trap, like the Vietnam, their Vietnam, the way Afghanistan was for the Soviet Union. And so I don't think the U.S., they, it's also good for the arms industry, which we're going to get to. I believe you're going to ask me about that. So keeping this war going as long as possible seems to be the U.S. strategy to try to bring down Putin, which, as we now know from the president of the United States, is, in fact, the ultimate aim of this proxy war that the U.S. is fighting at the expense of the Ukrainian people. That actually leads me to my next question. The U.S., this is according to Newsweek, uh, the U.S. is preventing Russia from paying its creditors, whom they, they owe about $600 million that's due on Monday. Without the ability to pay because of these sanctions, the Russians will have to draw on their dollar reserves from around the world and use that to pay. If they don't do that, they risk sovereign default, which would crash the Russian economy. But then the question is, is that the, the whole point? Is the U.S. strategy to make Russia an economic basket case? Of course it is. That is the whole idea. There's an economic war. There's an information war. Uh, and there's, I think, an insurgency that they'd like to, if Russia had, gets uh, bogged down or stays too long there and has to occupy Ukraine, I think you'll see an insurgency. But the economic war is the key part to bring Putin down. But Biden gave that up in his February 24 press conference, the first day of the Russian invasion, when he told the press that the sanctions were not there to prevent the invasion. That's what they were asking him. These didn't work to stop the invasion. Why are they going to uh, uh, hurt Russia now? And he said it was never intended to prevent the invasion. It's intended to punish Russia so the Russian people know what he's done to them. That's what this is all about. And that's a direct quote from Biden. He gave it away then. That this is all about having the Russian people rise up against Putin right. to do what happened in 2014 in Kiev uh, to overthrow the democratically elected Viktor Yanukovych. I think that Russia has been wanting with China to get away from a dollarized economy for a long time now, to, to kick the dollar off of its throne as the world reserve currency. And what the U.S. sanctions have done 
with the Europeans on board and not the rest of the world. The vast majority of the populations of the world have not joined in, in, a, in these sanctions, continuing to trade with Russia. That's causing a lot of pressure, for, especially on India and on China and Pakistan, where the Pakistani president, Imran Khan, says that the U.S. is trying to overthrow him, which is not a far-fetched idea, because if they could put someone in there friendly to the U.S. and the Pakistani military, they, they would put sanctions maybe on Russia. So they are tr the U.S. is losing this sanctions war. A sovereign default would mean what? That they're going to have high, Russia would have high interest rates and a lower credit rating. Their credit rating has already gone way down. I don't think it matters to Russia. They'll default. But they are winning this sanctions war so far. The dollar... Uh, against the ruble has gone back to the level it was at the beginning of the invasion. It went up to 150 rubles a dollar in the middle of March. It's back down to 80, around 80, 85. So they want to get off the dollar anyway. Uh, hold on. Don't hang up. We have to we have a hard break at the top of the hour in about 35 seconds, and we're going to come back and finish this conversation. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're going to take this very short break and come right back. So hang on. Misfits. I'm John Kiriakou here with my co-host Michelle Witte. We're speaking with Joe Loria. Joe is the editor-in-chief of Consortium News, founded by the late Robert Perry, and he's the author of the book How I Lost by Hillary Clinton. Joe, uh, just before the break, we were talking about how this is uh, not just a, a military war, but it's also an information war, it's an economic war, and it's something of a, of a trap. At least it appears to be something of a trap uh, akin to what we saw uh, in Afghanistan, uh, I want to talk for a moment about human rights. The U.S. this morning is calling for Russia to be suspended from the U.N. Human Rights Council. Um, I actually chuckled when when I saw the news because Saudi Arabia was a longtime uh, chairman of the uh, Human Rights Council. It's a joke when they execute, you know, 86 people at once after prayers on Friday. Uh, does does this matter in any way that, that Russia may or may not be suspended from the UN Human Rights Council? I think it matters as much as this economic war. Uh, just to finish the previous point before the break, Certainly. that Russia and China are creating, creating an entirely new system of monetary and yeah. financial system and India is involved in Africa and even inside the Euro inside NATO both Hungary and Turkey are not putting sanctions on Russia which of course means they could veto any NATO decision about this same things happening with the human rights issue here uh, don't forget the United States under Republican administrations they quit the this human rights council of the United yes. Nations they just altogether quit it when the democrats come and then and the UN ambassadors never in the cabinet under the Republicans Democratic administration, they go back in the cabinet and they rejoin the Human Rights Council. Uh, it's it's a body like um, little like the General Assembly. They can have investigations, reports, it's political embarrassment, uh, etc. I think Russia doesn't give a damn, frankly, about any political embarrassment that can come out of a General Assembly vote, which is, was held and strongly condemned uh, Russia's invasion, or whatever could happen at the Human Rights Council. Um, just like if even if the as the International Criminal Court is investigating war crimes, and, and I think we can expect indictments coming down, maybe as high up 
as the president of Russia, and he may never leave Russia again. Right. Uh, so he won't be arrested. I don't think they're going to go into Russia and get him. Lavrov may never leave. A foreign minister not being able to leave. That would be an interesting Crazy. and difficult situation, but they may not indict him. Uh, and you have to show the hypocrisy here of all the war crimes that WikiLeaks, for example, uh, really, uh, revealed about the United States. And there's there was an investigation about the U.S. in Afghanistan, even though the U.S. doesn't belong to the ICC, Afghanistan does. So if it's committed on the territory of an ICC member, there can be an investigation. There was. It never came to fruition. Of course, there was never anybody in the U.S. indicted for any kind of a war crime. But they're going to do it to Russia. I don't think there's any doubt about that. But it won't go anywhere because they won't arrest anyone, in my opinion. But So that's a little bit stronger than whatever the Human Rights Council can do. You're absolutely right. Here in the United States, the Democrats... Democrats are trying to outhawk the Republicans, it seems, and the debate inside the Democratic Party is whether to yet again give the Pentagon even more money than it's asking for. Um, are there any Democrats willing to stand up to the military industrial complex, especially in light of the fact that we have second world airports, our bridges are literally collapsing into rivers uh, below them, our roads are in dire need of repair, not to mention that our public schools are all broke. Is there anybody willing to stand up to the Pentagon? or to stand up to their congressional colleagues where it comes to Pentagon funding? Well, you'd like to think that somebody like Bernie Sanders or one of the so-called squad might do that, but the answer is no. And if you look at the entire history post-World War uh, U.S., first of all, th there was a fear that there'd be a new depression. The war certainly got the U.S. out of the depression. The military spending saved the United States economy. Once the war ended, the economy started to crash. Yes. There was huge fear that depression would return. So for the first time really in U.S. military history, there was no demobilization. There was not turning back Singer, a sewing machine company made weapons during uh, the, the Spanish-American War, and then they went back to making sewing machines. This didn't happen. There was a permanent military industrial, um, I think Eisenhower's word was complex. That's what he was fearful of. That's what was created during the war. Um, Enver uh, Bush, I forget his first name now, warned about this to FDR that we could, that this relationship between science and industry and the military could be dangerous. Uh, there was, it was already an embryo there in the Second World War. It came to full fruition after the war, and we've never looked back. There's been, defense spending has become a major product and export of the United States as the country deindustrializes. You're not going to deindustrialize in this. And this is so dangerous because it also um, it also uh, helps promote American expansion, I think, because of these weapons. They need to be used, for one thing. So it's all tied up in an, an executive branch that has become unbelievably powerful, more than the Constitution ever allowed. Congress was supposed to have been the premier institution, according to the uh, origin of the, of the U.S. The executive branch, the military industry, and this expansion, which began really from the invasion of the of the continent by white people, to, wiped out the indigenous people. It started with an invasion and it's never ended. So you need weapons for that to expand the power of the United States. It has its own logic. U.S. economy needs to diversify, get away from this addiction to the military industry, the fact that every state has some military uh, factory in it so that all Congress people will vote for it. Otherwise, it'll mean jobs lost back home. Um, this is 
uh, a huge problem in the world when you've got now a budget that's creeping towards a trillion. And when you add the Department of Energy's budget for nuclear weapons, it's already yes. over a trillion. Good point. So, uh, you know, they talk about the Saudis getting off oil and diversifying. And this is what Mohammed bin Salman was just trying to do with the U.S. needs to diversify and get off the drug of military spending. And the Democrats throughout the Cold War was as, were as big a hawks, if not bigger than the Republicans. There is perfect unity on foreign affairs for the most part of both parties. It's a one-party state when it comes to foreign affairs. And now they want a totalitarian, and I mean that, total control on the information environment. You cannot say anything that it, that that undermines their arguments, particularly in this war, uh, their proxy war in Ukraine. It's a dangerous state we're in in the United States right now. And at the heart of it is still this insane military spending, while, as you say, the social costs are enormous and they're going to keep getting worse the more money is put into weapons instead of putting into the people's needs in this in the United States. Absolutely right. I want to uh, ask you about something that we mentioned on the show yesterday. We said that Elon Musk had made this major purchase of Twitter stock so that he now owns just just under 10% of the company's the largest shareholder in the company. And that entitled him to a seat on the board of directors. Um, Elon Musk fancies himself a champion of free speech. And Twitter has taken to banning pretty much any speech that it doesn't like. Uh, yesterday, I, I read uh, something from Covert Action magazine where they had taken down um, an article that one of the board members of Covert Action had posted that quoted a member of Congress, and they said that the member of Congress was engaged in hate speech because uh, he wasn't supporting the uh, Ukrainian line in the war. So is is there going to be, should we, should we expect to see changes in, in Twitter's uh, free speech policy now that Elon Musk is involved? Are there going to be any changes at all? Is Is this the beginning of moving Twitter back to what it was originally meant to be? How do you envision this uh, playing out? Well, we should add that the White House called uh, a senator, uh, a Russian propagandist, basically, from the podium at the White House at the beginning. You're absolutely right. Uh, even, bef even before the invasion. That was during the buildup to the invasion. Look, um, Elon Musk put out a poll few days ago on Twitter saying, you know, does Twitter protect free speech? And I immediately said, this guy is going to try to buy Twitter, right? And then the next thing you hear, he bought nine, ten percent of it. I just knew the guys. He he's a he's into he wanted to make money. This is about a business deal. He's a businessman. I don't like Elon Musk very much. I don't know a lot about him, but what I do know troubles me. He reminds me of that character in the film Don't Look Up, that creepy scientist yeah. who was a kind of am amalgamation of. Bezos and Steve Jobs and Musk and this type. See, the, the American culture, the media culture creates cults of personality, negative and positive. The negative ones is, of course, to demonize any leader that they want to overthrow. Milosevic was Hitler. Noriega was Hitler. Saddam was Hitler. And Hillary Clinton called Putin Hitler way, you know, <laughs> six years ago. <laughs> Certainly he's Hitler now. That's very troubling when you're talking about a whole nation and just focusing on one person, no matter how, how authoritarian this person may be, even Saddam Hussein. But they also do on the other side. They lionize personalities like they did with Steve Job, Jobs, like they're doing with Elon Musk, this cult of a scientific person who's like 
Gates, Bill Gates, I mean, obviously a very important person in this mold. We're supposed to bow down and they know everything because they, they've made a lot of money. That's the main thing. They made yeah. a lot of money. And when in America, if you make a lot of money, you're smart. You know, and if you don't make a lot of money, you're obviously dumb, which right. is complete rubbish, obviously. So Musk, you, you keep in mind this tweet that he put out. If he wants the freedom to say it, he can. And I think he should. He remembered when there was the coup uh, talk in Bolivia, and he said, yes, we do coups in Bolivia because I need my lithium. Yeah. And I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> That's right. See, he agreed with the coup in Bolivia because he needs lithium for his battery projects, right? Look, he's been talking with Jack Dorsey apparently online, and they're cr they're worried about the direction Twitter has gone in. And let's face it, Twitter just got a huge black eye when the New York Times and the Washington Post finally admitted that that laptop of Hunter Biden was true and everything that's on there that had been reported by the New York Post was true. And if you recall, the, the Twitter blocked the New York Post's webs, uh, Twitter page. They couldn't tweet for the last two weeks before the election. That is one of the worst cases of, of repression of news to try to uh, push an election in a certain direction. This is not what the media is supposed to be doing, obviously. So they, that's why I think Twitter's on the defensive now. This laptop store has really hurt them. And it's probably the opening that Musk saw to get in there. I think it's a, essentially a business deal. But I, and I cannot judge whether he's really committed to a free speech, but Twitter's in trouble and they're going to have to climb down. But in the middle of this war, I doubt that they will. But maybe there'll be a reckoning at some day, not only Twitter, but all the other social media and the mainstream media itself. There might be a reckoning. And for example, in that tweet, in the Hunter Biden, Biden uh, laptop story, they it was debunked that this was Russian disinformation. If you remember, there was 50 so uh, retired intelligence people said this looked like and smelled like, although we don't have proof, Russian disinformation. How many things have been falsely uh, blamed on Russia as disinformation, uh, including the WikiLeaks releases in the 2016 election? That was true. It doesn't matter whether Russia or anybody else gave them. That was accurate. Clinton behaved badly. Democratic Party behaved badly. It was reported and they blamed the messenger and they were, they say, is the source, Russia. So Something's got to change here. Uh, I think Musk is, again, probably motivated most by money, but and Twitter is on the back foot. Uh, I don't know that they're willing to sell any more of it to him. He's on the board now, so he's going to have some say. Uh, and he might be committed to more free speech. I hope he is. Uh, as a guy I can't completely read, I would put his business interest first, but he might indeed have a sincere interest in turning this thing around because it's gone too far, this kind of outright censorship that we're seeing pressured by the government. Now, private companies can censor, but the government has been pressuring the social media companies in public hearings. So it's really by proxy government censorship, which is clearly against the First Amendment. Joe, we only have a couple of minutes left. I, I can't let you go without asking about Julian Assange. Uh, we spoke with Kevin Gastala yesterday uh, about the, the latest developments in the UK, and the Westminster Court will soon formally ask the Home Secretary to extradite Julian to the US if the Home Secretary, Priti Patel, uh, does that. Does Julian not have the option of asking the European Court of Human Rights to intervene? Or are his options exhausted? No, he has three options. I think that's April 20th when the magistrate yes, court April 20th. gets the case again, and then they're, they're obliged to execute it, just send it to Priti Patel, the Home Secretary. But at that point, the first thing Assange's lawyers can do, they have four weeks to submit arguments to Patel, Pretty Patel not to extradite Julian Assange. Nobody expects that to go anywhere, uh, but they could do that. They could try to sway her. 
uh, explain why this is all wrong, why the Supreme Court should have taken the case, why this is a First Amendment issue. This is he didn't commit any crimes under under UK law right now in terms of how the Official Secrets Act is written. Um, and that he suffered enough. All the arguments that Sanders lawyers can make to Pretty Patel, which will probably be met with stone cold disregard, and she will want to go ahead and extradite him. When she makes that decision, it's at that point. My understanding is that his Sanders lawyers could then try to launch a cross appeal to the high court, and that would mean all the decision, the decision that the that the magistrate judge. Vanessa Barreza made was not to extradite Assange because of his health and the condition of U.S. prisons. The high court, when hearing the U.S. appeal, never never disagreed with that. They said, they, yeah, they, they, they didn't dare say that the prisons were wonderful and that he wasn't suicidal. They just said they believed American promises, that he, he wouldn't be mistreated there. That which is That's how flimsy it was. But Barreza's uh, decision was completely in agreement with all the other aspects of the case, First Amendment, press freedom. Uh, whether this is a political case or not, according to the extradition treaty between Britain and the U.S., all those other issues were completely the fact that this should have been thrown out because they, 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 they were spying on the discussions between Julian Assange and his lawyers by that Spanish company that the CIA yeah. was behind. It's all so all of that stuff was agreed to by it was by Baratza. So that's the stuff they can appeal now to the High Court, even though they won the case. It was only on the health and prison ground. So they could say, look, high court, you're sending this man here, but all of these reasons that were agreed in the lower court are wrong. Now, the high court, I think, will not accept this appeal. That's the problem. They don't want to air, they don't want to air the dirty laundry of the U.S., all of the crimes that Julian Assange exposed of the U.S., and, and, and all of the questions of the First Amendment and the spying on his lawyer. They're not going to want that to come out. So I don't think the high court will accept that. And the third option, then, is the European Court of Human Rights. The problem with that is I don't think the British government will wait around to see what they're going to say. And they have put on record many times that they will disregard these appeal, these decisions of the European Court of Human Rights because the the way it's written at the Council of Europe, the that Britain still belongs to, they are subject to it because they, it's not about the EU, even though they left. But they, it's up to the members themselves to enforce it. There's no enforcement mechanism like a national court does that has police, that has prison system. This is an international court, so they may decide in Assange's uh, favor, but he may be probably in Alexandria by then. God forbid. We'll leave it there. That was the voice of Joe Loria. Joe is the editor-in-chief of Consortium News, founded by the late Robert Perry, and he's also the author of the book How I Lost by Hillary Clinton. You're listening to Political Misfits. Stay tuned. We're going to take a short break and come right back. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. The Iranian government announced yesterday that it would return to Vienna to meet with the United States only for the purpose of signing a new joint comprehensive plan of action. Otherwise, the deal is off. An Iranian foreign ministry spokesman said, quote, we will not be going to Vienna for new negotiations, but to finalize the nuclear agreement. At the moment, we do not have a definitive answer from Washington. 
unquote. We're joined from Iran by Mohammed Mirandi. Mohammed is a professor of English literature and Orientalism at the University of Tehran and a frequent commentator on issues relating to foreign affairs. Welcome back, Mohammed. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, we're always happy to have you. Mohammed, uh, I'm going to ask you to uh, think for a moment like an American and tell us what is the delay on the American side? It was the U.S. that pulled out of the JCPOA. It's been renegotiated. Why not just sign it? My understanding is that uh, among the political establishment in Washington, there's a large amount of criticism directed at the U.S. negotiating team, and that these officials, which also include senators and people in Congress, uh, are experienced were expecting greater uh, con- concessions from Iran. They were basically hoping that the United States, by keeping the maximum pressure sanctions in place, would be able to force Iran to give uh, new concessions in addition to what was agreed upon in the JCPOA, the nuclear deal signed in 2015. Yeah. Uh, one of the complaints that the Iranian foreign ministry Uh, has is that the U.S. wants an agreement, but it also wants to deprive Iran of the economic benefits of such an agreement. What exactly does that mean? Does that relate to what would be um, continuing sanctions against the IRGC, or is this dealing with something else? Well, we have to keep two things in mind. One is the behavior of Obama, and the other is the behavior of Trump and Biden. When Obama signed the deal, the Iranians uh, committed themselves in full and they uh, carried out their obligations immediately, whereas the American side didn't do so. And unfortunately, there wasn't a proper verification process in the deal at that time to gauge whether the American side was actually committing itself to the deal. So this time around, a big, uh, or let's say a large amount of time was spent creating this verification process to make sure that uh, if uh, that, that the Iranians would only carry out their side of the bargain if the Americans also carried out their side of the bargain. So that is one thing that was negotiated, and there's still some sticking points over this. The Americans don't want a proper verification process because they and the Europeans in the eyes of the Iranians, want to cheat Iran again. They want to use any loophole possible to to put pressure on Iran. The second issue is Trump and Biden. After Trump tore up the deal and imposed the maximum pressure sanctions, or reimposed the maximum pressure sanctions, because these sanctions were initially imposed by Obama before the deal, to a large degree, when he reimposed these sanctions, uh, his uh, it, this this showed that the deal was also lacking significantly uh, in guarantees. So the Iranians this time around wanted guarantees that the Americans would no longer be able to just simply tear up the agreement without paying a price. Right. That 
has also been negotiated. There are still some differences there. And then there's a third issue where the Americans want to keep certain entities and certain individuals uh, on their sanctions list, whereas the Iranians are saying that these are violations of the deal. You cannot keep important political or economic figures or institutions on a sanctions regime and uh, say that this is a normalization of the Iranian economy. So that if the Americans want the Iranians to put caps on their nuclear program, the Americans have to remove these people from the sanctions list or these institutions or these bodies from the sanctions list uh, so that the Iranians can feel that uh, they've uh, received something uh, substantial in return for those caps. Right. Mohammed, a few weeks ago, we saw a trial balloon in the media here that said that the U.S. was considering removing the Iran uh, Revolutionary Guard Corps from the state-sponsored terrorism list. Uh, this would be a, a major move forward in improving relations between the United States and Iran. And Israel was largely silent, which was on the surface of things a little surprising. But that's why it led me to believe this was a trial balloon that had already been cleared with Israel. And then we didn't hear anything else about it. What do you make of these ideas? Do you think the U.S. would actually remove the IRGC from the terrorism list and, and sort of shake this thing free so it could be signed? Well, the Israelis were very much opposed to removing the IRCG from the list, but uh, they they did become somewhat silent, but behind the scenes, they still continued to mm -hmm. object. And uh, this is important. We have to keep in mind that there are two issues here. One is that the IRGC uh, will, uh, if there's if there's an agreement, and if the U.S. removes it from their so-called terrorist list, uh, the IRGC will still be sanctioned by the United States. Yes, and so that is that is one issue. But removing it from the terror list is actually to the benefit of the United States, because the as in response to declaring the IRGC a terrorist organization, the Iranians declared uh, the U.S. armed forces in in the region to be a, a terrorist yes. entity as well. And under these circumstances, it makes it very dangerous in the Persian Gulf region when navies interact and they basically see each other as terrorist organizations. That creates... Uh, uh, a space for uh, misunderstanding and for escalation, uh, especially now at a time when there is such an, uh, a major energy crisis. So it is to the benefit of the United States to remove Iran. But the problem with the political establishment in the United States is that uh, they are very quick and swift at imposing sanctions against anyone they yeah. want, ordinary yeah. people, right. uh, governments, whoever. But uh, when it comes to removing sanctions, it is very difficult for the United States to convince itself that it's not in its interest. So uh, the Iranians are, are adamant and they're not going to accept any conditions. They, they're saying that the United States must remove the guards from this uh, uh, terrorist, the so-called terrorist list. I wanted to ask you, too, about uh, something I had to laugh. I saw it on the Radio Free Europe website today. Radio Free Europe, of all outlets, famously the U.S. propaganda 
uh, station in in Europe, says that it's Iran that's demanding that the IRGC be removed from the terrorism list and that that's what the stumbling block is. And they they said that that was enough to kill the deal. Obviously, this is the U.S.'s propaganda position. But should we draw from that that the deal is is done or because, you know, there's a Democrat in the White House, one who was working for the president who who negotiated this deal in the first place. That leads me to a, a follow up question before you answer the Hill newspaper opined today that the U.S. should immediately reenter the JCPOA because it would further isolate Russia. It's not about U.S. and Iranian relations. It's about isolating Russia. Senator Ben Cardin of uh, Maryland, who's a senior member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, said that Donald Trump withdrawing from the JCPOA was a major disaster and that it damaged U.S. economic power overseas. And the way we recover that economic power is by coming to an agreement with the Iranians. Do you believe that that that's really a, a viable position to take, that the U.S. should re-enter the JCPOA, even if it's just for the purpose of further isolating Russia? Would it give the U.S. more leverage over Russia? Well, first, the removal of the IRGC, the, the guards, from the terrorist list is a reasonable demand because this was something that Trump uh, carried out. And this was after the signing of the JCPOA. Right. right. And when you uh, make a, or when you declare uh, a key instrument of any state, especially the armed forces, as a terrorist organization, that is definitely going to have economic implications. So if the United States expects Iran to go back to 2015, then the United States has to go back to 2015, and that includes its uh, its declaration with regards to the guards. Another issue is that this is not the only stumbling block. There are a series of, of differences, as I mentioned earlier, about the sanctions, about the about guarantees, and uh, these, and and I think also the verification process. Although many issues have been solved, but there are a series of issues that have yet to be resolved. And for Iran, in order for the deal to be sufficiently implemented, these have to be resolved. And the United States has to accept uh, these demands because, you know, if, if, if they expect Iran to go back to 2015, they can't, they can't have uh, new sanctions to put new pressure on Iran. But with regards to the, the last point that you make, made, I, I would agree that the United States has harmed its own standing by tearing up the deal, and it continues to do so by uh, pursuing Trump's policy. Obama, Biden has, until now, been pursuing Trump's policies, despite complaining about them during the campaign. But I think uh, it's a, a, a miscalculation if they think that Iran is going to side with them against Russia. The Iranian position on the Ukrainian war was declared almost immediately after the war began. And that is that the Iranians do not accept the war. The Iranians believe that the Russians should not have initiated uh, an invasion of the country, of Ukraine. But at the same time, the Iranians say that the 
that NATO is even more to blame than Russia by lying and subsequently expanding eastwards by uh, carrying out a coup and by supporting Nazis or neo-Nazis and uh, and the harassment of Russian Ukrainians and the and the and the suppression and killing of Russian Ukrainians and uh, the Donbas area, which I, everyone knows the story, so I, I I shouldn't really dwell too much on this. So the Iranians are not going to uh, take part in in any war, economic war, siege against Russia initiated by the United States, especially when it's the United States that has carried out a host of wars and invasions over the past few decades, whether in Libya or Yemen with the Saudis or Syria through ISIS and Al-Qaeda and the current occupation, Iraq, Afghanistan, the siege on Venezuela, on Cuba, on the, the sanctions on Nicaragua, the list goes on. And of course, the animosity of the United States towards Iran, the murder of senior government officials, assassinations and sanctions against ordinary people. So there's no reason why Iran would cooperate with the United States. However, if the United States wants to improve relations with Iran, if the United States wants to have a new beginning with Iran, uh, and perhaps in, in, in the future have a more constructive relationship with Iran, it will have to accept the nuclear deal. And if the United States accepts the nuclear deal, and if it ultimately implements the nuclear deal, then there, there could be opportunities in the future. But uh, after all they've done to Iran and our region and the world, uh, the United States should not expect Iran to side with it against a U.S. adversary. And I think that's basically what the whole of the global South is is saying to Washington. When you see, I, I mean, small nations aside, you know, those nations that are easily bullied, uh, major powers, whether it's India with its complicated relationship with China and Russia and, and the rest of Asia, it is not accepting the U.S. stance. Pakistan, uh, too, you, you see the, the, the situation in the country. You see a host of major countries, important countries across the world, uh, not siding with Western countries. And I think uh, that they're basically making a statement that they, they believe that the NATO is also to blame, if not more than anyone else. But also they see that this is the waging wars and invasions is a Western tradition, or let's say a Western, a NATO tradition, not a Western tradition, but a NATO tradition. Sure. That was the voice of Mohammed Mirandi. Professor Mirandi is a professor of English literature and Orientalism at the University of Tehran and a frequent commentator on issues of global importance. You're listening to Political Misfits at Radio Sputnik. We're going to take a short break and come back. Stay tuned. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriak. We're taking a look at an important local story that I think probably uh, has has some echoes uh, with stories that are happening across the country, and that is some progress 
uh, of the D.C. Police Reform Commission, right. or rather probably lack of progress. Right. A year ago this week, the D.C. Police Reform Commission issued a long report detailing strategies not to defund, but to decenter police in an effort to respond to the racial justice protests of 2020 and to make the city safer. We are joined now by a member of that committee to talk about what has and hasn't been done uh, with these recommendations. We're joined by former retired police officer Ron Hampton. He's D.C. representative for Blacks in Law Enforcement of America. He's a former executive director of the National Black Police Association uh, and a law enforcement fellow at the University of the District of Columbia's Institute for Public Safety and Justice. Uh, Mr. Hampton, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you very much for having me. So, you know, I, I want to talk about what has happened with all of the work of this D.C. Police Reform Commission uh, that issued a report last year. Uh, it, it provided a bunch of suggestions uh, for the city to make itself safer. They included making behavioral health specialists and other specialized first responders, the default first responders in a crisis to be accompanied by police if there were weapons involved. It includes strategies for strengthening public safety nets and decriminalizing poverty, uh, replacing police in schools with other kinds of counselors and service staff, and investing in community violence intervention programs to implement harm reduction policing methods and to ban you know, tr triggering methods like jump outs uh, it recommended truly holding police accountable for their crimes by expanding the existing Office of Police Complaints. And uh, a year later, Ron, I mean, this is not by any means an exhaustive list of the recommendations, uh, but I wonder if you can tell us where there has been some progress on the suggestions this committee made and uh, what has been ignored. Very little progress. And, and, and the bulk of the recommendations have, have really been ignored. Yeah. There is, however, some legislation that's waiting at the council for movement. But when we talk about, um, for example, um, police and schools, uh, which is supposed to, uh, to take place in 2025, uh, school year 2025. I, I mean, it didn't have to be that far off, but I understand there needed to be some transition. But, but the mayor and some of her crew, they're talking about putting money in the budget to keep police in schools. They're talking about hiring more police, which we talked about freezing, and and doing some uh, uh, analysis around how many police do we really need? Mm -hmm. What is it that we really need police to do? And the decentering uh, component of the commission's report talks about that very issue because there are several things that the police are involved in today and have been for some time really can be turned over to civilian uh, or, or put under civilian control, like traffic tickets. Mm -hmm. We we have, uh, uh, there's, 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 there's research here, there's national research that talks about the value of doing that and, and somehow another, um, and additionally reducing the tension that comes from those kind of things, not only for people who drive, but in our community, the jump outs that you name. Those kind of things can be eliminated and that can be done by the police chief. That does not take uh, legislation from the council. That does not take uh, uh, some document from the mayor to say that she or he supports that. That can be done by a chief of police. But there's been very little movement of it, and they have used that as, as an excuse, this increase in crime. And what I want to say is, is that we've had an increase in crime in this city every summer that I can ever remember. 
there's been an increase in crime. So that's not an excuse not to reform or, or, or decenter the police as it relates to public safety in our community. Yeah, and you mentioned, I wanted to ask, my understanding is there wasn't a lot of hope that Mayor Bowser would be particularly helpful in implementing some of these proposals, but that, you know, there was an expectation that the city council could be an ally. And so I want to ask of these three figures, you know, the, the mayor, the city council and the chief of police, you know, what what has happened? What is what is the holdup, especially with the city council, where I think there was some hope uh, that, that they would be more supportive? Well, I think that's going to take place. Uh, and, and I'm hoping uh, very strongly that that, that that it is going to take place. There's legislation that's waiting for that process, the D.C. Justice Lab, who had uh, uh, representatives in the uh, in and on the commission, uh, has been monitoring that legislation and, and its movement. So I, I think we're hopeful that that's going to take place and we have to continue to put pressure on them to do it. But there's no optimism at all coming out of the mayor's office and, and, and particularly during election season because, you know, uh, uh, politicians can't see their way out of uh, being anything other than uh, pro-police during election time because they want people to know that they support the police. But the question ought to be, what did you support the police for? What is it that the police ought to be doing and can do in our community that is different than what they've been doing all along? And and we addressed that again in the report, for, the, for example, that uh, mental health workers uh, ought not have to depend on the police to respond. They can respond to those situations out of hand themselves. They ought to be tied directly into the communication system and receive those calls. And if they need a law enforcement person, then they are capable of calling a law enforcement person because that's what they do. They they they, they go in, uh, examine, analyze the individual and his or her behavior. And if they need the police, they know. If not, they they. They, they they take them and then go to a hospital so that they can be treated. That can be done right now, and that that was one of the suggestions. The other thing is the investment that the mayor, which I which she did support, investing more money in credible messengers and violence interrupters. And 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 anybody with an ounce of sense would understand that that is the way forward. That we ought to be utilizing those individuals in our community to intervene and prevent and intervene. In, in the in the in the situations that's going on in our community, the extra funding is about equipping them with the resources that they need, so they don't have to refer a person to a particular situation of whatever their needs may be. But they will have the the ability to direct them directly in those kind of uh, places where they need to be to get those services, and then investing in housing. I mean. That's a that's a key thing in this city, and one that disadvantages people who look like me and other folks in our community. Some of those things are, are natural, but again, the politics of this is just unbelievable. And during this particular time of uh, uh, in our community, when elections are taking place and people are uh, are trying to out elect each other and a whole lot of other things, those issues become hot button issues. But then it's not going to change, you know. I want to ask also, I want to come back to funding, but I want to ask, you know, it's it seems very clear that or it is very clear, right? We have we have evidence supporting the, you know, the fact that more money for police and more police on the ground and more aggressive policing doesn't lead to less crime. And so, you know, uh, it, 
I wonder, you know, what what is it that maintains people's faith in these systems, which are presented to us as crime prevention systems, when they obviously don't work, right? Why why is it a political you know, sort of political uh, lifesaver, right? To to throw your support behind the police and, and funding for police. If actually what people want is safety and that doesn't deliver it. I'm wondering if you can talk to us about what you think it is in, in, in people's uh, minds and their mindset that maintains faith in these systems that so obviously are failing us. They, they sell this as a fear, uh, as, as a mechanism to reduce fears and to address the fears that are associated with crime and disorder in the community. That's how they do it. They're selling this as a strategy to reduce the fear, to somehow never make it safe to be in that community. I, I, I was on the police department during the time in Washington, D.C., where they were shooting for and had achieved several times the number of 5,000 police officers. That was back in the 70s and 80s. And I'm telling you, we were bumping into each other and we still wasn't solving crime. Right. It, 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 it just wasn't the case. But yeah. what we were saying was is that all of these police officers are going to re- protect you and reduce fear in the community. And, and that's crazy because, again, when it comes to the politicians, they sell that as a solution that'll make you safe. And that's what we're experiencing right now. The fact of the matter is that police don't have anything to do with reducing crime. And we have learned that over the years. But if they would stop taking advantage of the fact that people, that that the idea that there are things happening in our community is that the things that happen in our community do happen in our community, but they're things that we have that we can use to address those cri- those crimes, and, and it necessarily isn't the police. Talk to us also about funding and, and budget concerns in these uh, some of the processes that have stalled. Because obviously, if you are going to, you know, if you want to have more behavioral specialists rather than police on hand, you've got to fund them. You've got to put money into into better housing. You've got to put money into having different staff in schools. Uh, what obstacles are there to funding some of the programs that were suggested in this report from a year ago? Nothing more than people believing in old strategies that haven't worked rather than identifying the things that have worked and then investing in them. And, and I mean, we had some of them, credible messengers, the, the violence interrupters. Those things work, and we know that they work. Invest in them and don't play around with it. We suggested in the report, for example, that we would take the credible messengers and the violence interrupters and put them all under one roof, one agency, because they're divided up among two agencies. And that that's that's really crazy. The, People doing the same thing, but they work for two different people. Those kind of things are the things that we need to be doing. The other side of it is is that this this notion of having social workers uh, uh, deal with issues of mental health, and and we that there's a crisis intervention unit that has existed in this city for some time, but it's been underfunded and it's been disconnected, and it and it doesn't work. A group of people ride around in a car, they're not connected to the communication division where all of the calls come in, they get their information from the police. But the police aren't really qualified to make that kind of judgment and decision as it relates to people who are suffering from a mental health episode. We already know and have things that work. We just need to invest in them and do them. The same thing that we've been doing in policing, and it hasn't worked. 
why do we stick with it? Because we tell the lie and the story about somehow or another that an individual with a badge and a gun driving a car with red lights is somehow or another going to make our community safe. And that's not true. There's no research that addresses that. Yeah, it is such it is honestly, you just feel like you're bashing your head against a wall to say, like, everybody wants to feel safer. No one's saying people shouldn't want that. You know, that's not the message of people who are protesting the police. They're saying it'll make you safer. Maybe we should try something else. I, I also while we have you, Mr. Hampton, I wanted to ask about this story about the D.C. crime lab losing its accreditation, which happened more than a year ago. And and I haven't seen anything about a a process to reinstate its accreditation. But it seems like if the the only crime lab in the city um, cannot be put to use, right, can't process evidence, that would seem to really get in the way of uh, the right of people to a speedy trial and and be bad for anyone involved in the system, victims of crimes, uh, people accused of crimes, everybody. What is going on with the D.C. crime lab right now? Well, to the to the FBI credit, who has a crime lab and 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 they have uh, experts who have been doing this even before we had our own crime lab. That's what they're utilizing at this time. But nothing can replace the idea that you have your own crime lab, and that was the idea of building the crime lab and investing in that kind of process in order to facilitate the evidence and other things that we need to properly produce at, at trial and whatnot. To, to, to enhance convictions. But yeah, they're having problems with that. And it also goes to address some of the systemic issues associated with if the, if the, if the crime lab isn't credible or there's a problem there, then what impact is that having on the ability of the district, the, the U.S. Attorney's Office and the, and the local prosecutor to even take cases to court and then win them with the evidence that they need. Mm-hmm. It's a serious problem. I, I, I read in the paper the other day that they, uh, the mayor and the police chief was going through there talking with the people because they have set aside some money to bring back or engage in recreditation so that it can get up and running again. But that's a serious issue. Those are the kind of things that we need to have. That can be an impediment to public safety. We are not talking about those kind of things, but just like this analysis of how many police officers we really need, it needs to be some analysis that we utilize to address on that. Uh, out of a out of a day, the average police officer responds to certain calls. The majority of those calls aren't criminal calls. They may be calls for service, but they don't have nothing to do with cops and robbers. So we we can address that. But we don't need 400 more police officers. Do, can you, do you know if we were to hire 400 more police officers a day, do you know when they would actually take the street? Yeah, no. Probably, probably about 18 months to two years from now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what is that going to do about the so-called problem that we have in our community today? So we need to utilize other resources and agencies in a, obtaining public safety. This makes sense to me. No, it's remarkable to me. And D.C. is not alone in this. If you have a call to city services about anything, animal control, finding somebody's lost property, whatever, ultimately, you're just always rooted to the police because that's the only place that's funded at all. And again, there there are probably lots and lots of calls, that, as you say, there are lots and lots of calls that go to police that they don't need to be handling. You don't need someone with a with a gun walking into a community to handle a, a rabid raccoon or something. No, oh, you're right about that. <laughs> exactly. That was retired police officer Ron Hampton. He's D.C. Representative.
representative for blacks and law enforcement. Uh, Ron, I hope to I hope we can check in uh, with you on the you know, if there is some progress made on some of these suggestions. I look forward to it. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, We are going to stick around here for the next couple of minutes and give you a few last headlines that caught our eye. I don't know if you noticed, uh, John, the latest on Prince Andrew. Prince Andrew, I did not. You Prince, mentioned this during the break, but I, I haven't seen anything about Prince Andrew He's today. being accused of fraud uh, by, it seems like a Turkish millionaire being accused of fraud, uh, or is accusing Prince Andrew of fraud. It was something about as uh, Andrew's like budding entrepreneur project. It's because he's been cut off otherwise. <laughs> Just sounds ridiculous. Uh, but now his his two daughters have been uh, roped into this lawsuit, apparently, and they're also being uh, accused of fraud by this mis- millionaire who's uh, saying that he he she was defrauded by uh, Andrew's entrepreneurship program. Because oh, they have boy. a ton of sympathy. And Andrew's the entrepreneur. He's going to teach people entrepreneurship. That's yes. Yeah, so he's going to get other people. To, yeah. Yeah. A little bit of controversy here over um, Airbnb also. Airbnb has left Russia and Belarus. But now, do you see reports out here that they have banned Russian and Belarusian people from using the service? But it seems to be that it is if you are in Russia or in Belarus, you can't use the service. It is not Russians and Belarusians all over the world who can't use Airbnb. Um, but yeah, watch, <laughs> watching that closely, there's been some heated disagreements online as to what would actually is happening. I mean, if, if, if you had just you were just banning any Russian or Belarusian from using your platform, I would say, yeah. come on, that's that's silly. overreach. That's outrageous. Yeah. yeah. Beyond silly. Right. Outrageous. You want to just say people in those two countries aren't allowed to use the platform. Well, OK, I mean, right. you are collectively punishing those populations, but that is a little bit more understandable. I agree. We also have, you know, we, we have been talking, John, about the failure of this government to pass more COVID funding. Um, it seems like now the Senate has reached a $10 billion funding deal for COVID treatments, for vaccines and for testing. This $10 billion is less than the, I think it was $14 billion that was pulled from the spending package that got passed well, they need what, to give the extra money to the now. Pentagon. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, it's been given in like $300 million here, $500 million there. So they have reached it. NPR this morning was talking about this, saying the House was really minimally involved in coming together with this particular spending package because they were perceived as having messed up the last one. I'm not sure. I mean, I think sometimes you do just have to draw a line. I don't yeah. know. They didn't want the money taken yeah. back from from states and uh, communities. Yeah, right. It's less than half of the $22.5 billion that Joe Biden first requested. Doesn't include money to uh, increase vaccinations around the world, but is $10 billion more than we had before. Yep. So I guess we have to say it's something. You know, part of it, I think, is is that we've transitioned into this, you know, this view that COVID is endemic now and we're just going to have to learn to live with it. Mm-hmm. I think there's there's this feeling of less immediacy. And that, you know, the people who want uh, vaccines have gotten the vaccines and the people who don't want them won't get them. And so now we all just live with our choices. I mean, and now, you know, the question really is, I mean, we we were talking about this uh, about a week or two ago mm-hmm. as we were watching cases surge in Europe. Was this going to come to the United States? Uh, not not was the variant going to come, but was it going to cause another COVID surge? Because right. that has been the pattern. And there was a. Story. There's a story from uh, late last week in the New York Times that says researchers 
have detected a rise in viral particles removed from wastewater surveillance right. sites. Right. They've been doing that in all the major cities across the country. Mm-hmm. But I have not seen so far, and forgive me if I've just missed it, I haven't seen, I saw hospitalizations hit a record low right. at the end of last week. And I haven't necessarily seen, uh, you know, cases rising. No. There could be that most people who are getting this new variant are just asymptomatic. Um, it could be that, you know, this is the time that, that that breaks the pattern or it could be that, you know, next week we start to see again um, what happened with the last wave when anecdotally it was all, suddenly, suddenly after two years of this pandemic, everybody, you know, is getting COVID. God forbid. The only place where I've seen it detected in increasing numbers uh, has been in the Houston wastewater. Mm-hmm. Haven't seen that anywhere else. All right. Well, Houston's far away. So that's right. So yes, we're fine on them. Another story that I was really hoping to talk about in some more detail, and we're still still hoping, but um, Pope Francis has uh, apologized to Canada's indigenous community for uh, the abusive residential schools that were run for more than a century, often by the Catholic Church. There was actually a, a team, a group of indigenous people who went to the Vatican to ask for this apology, to, you know, uh, make their statements to to the Pope. Um, the apology is seen as a, a victory, but these groups are also asking for reparations. They're asking for compensation and they're asking, I think this is crucial, for the release of residential school records. Um, because, you know, I think that the mass graves that we heard about just what, a couple of months ago now yes. were not the end of the story, but the beginning of, of a story. Right. But that, Awful. you know, it's, it's going to speed the process along if you actually get these institutions to not only apologize, uh, but really come clean and really help facilitate those efforts to find everyone who who has gone missing. It's a sad note to end the show on, but I'll that say. is where we we left it. We'll bring you some good news tomorrow. I want to say thanks to our engineers here and our producers. Of course, thanks to all our guests. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Witte, thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. 